This program is presented by a community producer through Midland Community Television. The City of Midland and MCTV are not responsible for the content of the program. The views presented do not necessarily represent those of the City of Midland or MCTV. If you would like to produce your own program, contact MCTV at 837-3474 or access our website, cityofmidlandmi.gov slash MCTV. Local productions seen on Delta College Public Media are made possible with support from viewers like you. Thank you. Welcome to Junior Doan's The Spark. I'm Junior Doan and thank you for joining us. My guest today is Dr. Charles Giovanni Van San Cotinho, Principal and Managing Director of Cotinho Properties and podcast host on New Books Network. Welcome, Charles. Charles, I'm delighted to, to look at you on Zoom. It's really an exciting experience for me. In yes. looking, looking and listening, listening more than looking to your podcasts, which are very interesting. I ran across one you did recently in August, we're in September, on R. Arena's book, The Return of Strong Gods. Would you tell us something about the thesis of the book? Well, the thesis of uh, R. Arena's The Return of the Strong Gods, Nationalism, Populism, and the Future of the West, is that um, after 1945, there was a uh, decision by Western elites in reaction to the um, extremism of uh, Western, I suppose, primarily European politics in the 1914 to 1945 period to de-emphasize nationalism, to, in essence, um, uh, approach which was done gradually. So this didn't occur the day after World War II was over in 1945, but this is something which occurred gradually over the years beginning in 45, and I suppose really reaching the current form in the late 1960s, early 1970s, of um, an emphasis on income inequality inadvertently. Um, an emphasis on cultural pluralism, an emphasis on demographic pluralism via uh, mass immigration from third world countries, and an emphasis on a denationalization. In essence, you have to really remember that nationalism um, was a product of a series of projects in different countries in the late 18th, 19th century, up to 1914, and in some places up to 1945. And the 
results of what occurred between 1914 and 1945 made those uh, Western elites uh, turn their backs collectively on nationalism. And again, it occurred over a number of years. So, for example, in the UK, it was still the norm at the end of uh, the uh, evening cinema to sing God Save the Queen. Uh, that didn't stop occurring in the UK until the mid to late 60s. So before that, it was still the norm. So there was this uh, older form of um, nationalist discourse, which was still allowed and it was still endorsed by political and cultural elites. But that was gradually e eased out so that by the late 60s, early 70s, you have something more akin to what we have today, which is at least by political elites to frown upon any form of uh, political, cultural nationalism, unless you are a member of what is seen rightly or wrongly, in many cases wrongly, as a persecuted and oppressed minority, in quotation marks. Um, a, um, a cultural minority, a um, ethnic minority, et cetera, et cetera. Nationalism or, or identity politics for those groups is fine, and it was endorsed, particularly after the 1960s. Um, nationalism and cultural nationalism or political nationalism by majority groups, it was uh, frowned upon, or as actually today you can argue is um, almost persecuted to some extent. Um, you're viewed as being somewhat of a very odd fellow indeed if you come across as an American nationalist in, um, say, an Ivy League university or, for that matter, an Upper East Side cocktail party. Um, and so that's, that's in essence what the, what the thesis of the book and, the th and the, uh, what he is drawing to is the fact that due to the recent upheavals, this is all, the book was uh, published in late 2018, early 2019, so it's pre-COVID. Uh, but he's really referring to is the uh, Great Recession of 2008-2010. Because of that, um, there has been a return by not elite groups, but by good sections of the population, particularly in Europe, where parliamentary politics allows for representation in uh, legislatures of relatively small number of, um, of uh, political parties. So a party which has five, of a 5% 5 vote or a 10% vote, depending upon which country you're talking about, uh, outside of the UK, gets representation in parliament. And those um, formerly small numbers of uh, nationalist parties have grown and uh, now are either second or third place in the case of Hungary and Poland in first place in terms of uh, political rankings in parliament, etc. And um, he sees that as something which will continue until Western elites make the decision to um, re-engage with nationalist discourse and re-engage with the need felt by large numbers of the lower middle class and sectors of the middle class, as well as the native working class, to re-engineer not only cultural politics and national politics, but also economics, so that the aspects of uh, globalization, which have negatively impacted 
the um, those sectors of population uh, should re be um, rethought and uh, realigned to certain, uh, economic policies which are more likelier to benefit those sectors of the population and not just the one or five percent or ten percent etc so that in essence is the the thesis of his book what i took from the interview which was so interesting when i asked your opinion about it <clears throat> is he said people need to love and globalism de-roots them and they need faith family and place in other yes. words yes uh, correct and so you know i'm trying to think well what do we have going on in america and where what are our choices so um we'll just leave that there for the moment uh right but it it says be that there's value in studying history what drew you to study history i fell in love with it about the age of 10. why i did so i'm not quite sure um I don't remember very much being um, in love with it or engaged with it seriously before the age of 10, but I do remember in the summer of, of 2000, I'm sorry, summer of 1973 when I was 10 years old, I just became 10, uh, that uh, I read this book on English history. Where it is, I have no idea anymore. And I fell in love with English history and history in general and have um, never looked back since. That's really uh, interesting. Uh, what I'm thinking about is in the course of history, there aren't many ways that, that populations get ruled. They have the monarchy or the leader, they have republics. In our case, the only one that I know about where the people have the, the power or not the, the government or whatever. And then we have communism and other totalitarian-like systems. And right. um, as we slide between freedom and authority or freedom, it's, it's tricky. When you, when you do your research, what, how do you get a feel for that or, or knowledge about that? Where are they within their culture at that time for the slide to looser or tighter control? Uh, in essence, it relates back to uh, my earlier comments um, about from uh, the Reno book. In essence, uh, nationalism and nationalist discourse was uh, originally a project by cultural and to lesser extent political elites in terms of, uh, so the mass of the population would adhere to uh, the fact that um, I'm French, uh, therefore I should speak and write French, which was not true, or is only true of say 50% of the French population, or the population, I should say correctly, 50% of the population who was living in the Kingdom of France in July 13th, 1789. Only approximately 50% of them uh, knew French as their first language. Uh, in many other cases, it was either German, or Breton, or Flemish, or um, Navarrese, or Catalonian, et cetera, et cetera, or Italian. Um, the nationalist discourse, nationalist project uh, has this idea that everyone had to be French, speak French, identify themselves as French, 
And that identification should go back to the beginnings of France. So I'm not sure when they dropped it, but from the mid or late uh, 19th century up to 1990, 1980, on the first day of class in uh, French school for the beginning grade, there was this, maybe you heard this recitation, our ancestors, the Gauls, were uh, blonde-haired and blue-eyed, etc., etc. Now, that's an interesting um, way of looking at the national past. And again, it's something that was uh, invented by nationalist cultural and political elites. So, for example, and I don't want to get too much involved because it's a little bit intricate, um, France, of course, comes not from the Gauls in terms of the origin, etymological origins of the word, but from the Franks. The Franks were Germanic speakers who invaded or came to uh, what is today France in the mid-5th century AD as part of the collapse of the Roman Empire. Now, the native peoples there who they ruled were, of course, uh, Gauls who were a Celtic people. And I suppose uh, there was very little difference in terms of how you would look at them. I suppose for a non-European, they would look virtually the same. Um, but um, culturally, they're quite different. Uh, the Gauls, by this time in the late Roman Empire, were partially Celtic and partially Latin in terms of their uh, uh, speech. So probably there was many of them who were bilingual. And um, uh, because the number of Frankic uh, invaders was relatively small vis-a-vis -vis the existing population, that they gradually acculturated themselves to the Romanized Celtic population. So that, that partly explains this particular aspect, because in the 18th century, there were many people, many aristocrats who were arguing that they were what was called at the time nobilité de la race, or nobility of the race, meaning that uh, they claimed ancestry with the original Frankic rulers, and therefore, and the Frankic rulers were for a couple hundred years believed not so much in an uh, autocratic government, but a government by um, uh, a uh, proto-legislature type so that um, there will be a council of the leading aristocrats and, uh, or noblemen, and they would, in conjunction with the king, decide policy. So the, this um, 18th century idea, which in essence argues for a, a type of legislature which would be similar to the British Parliament, was based on the idea that, uh, oh, I'm, I'm, uh, my answer is Frankic, I was not a slave or a servant of the, uh, the, of the Celtic variety because I came here as a conqueror, not one of the conquered. And, of course, uh, in 1789, a lot of uh, the, the arguments was based on the fact that this was uh, a negative idea. And that's where this uh, particular opening school day speech comes from that uh, we are not uh, Frankic aristocrats, we're Gallic uh, underlings who are the real um, children of France. And the thing to remember, of course, is that until the middle of the 12th century, the, uh, there was no king of France, there was king of the Franks. 
And again, this idea that there was a conquered people as opposed to the conquerors. So to really answer your question, um, I suppose you can say that all European countries or all countries in on the world have this um, uh, duality. I'm, a, I'm tempted to say problem. It's more of a duality between the people who were settled and the people who came thereafter, usually as conquerors, and how they assimilated to each other to some extent or another. And of course, you, the best example is vis-a-vis uh, -vis France is the UK. In the UK, which we don't have a lot of knowledge, and that's why it's correct to call this period in European history the Dark Ages. I think maybe it's only two or three books or texts for the, about 150 years of uh, English history um, from, the, from when the Romans left Britain, which was around 410 AD, up to the uh, sometime in the 7th century AD. Uh, but in essence, what occurred was that the... Um, Angles, Saxons, and Jutes from northern Germany came to or invaded the UK. And because the numbers vis-a-vis -vis the resident Celtic or Romanized population was larger or much larger, there was not this um, cultural symbiosis that you had in France where the conquerors gradually assimilated themselves to, to some greater extent to the conquered. That's why they speak French which is a romance or, in essence, Latinized language and not some proto-Germanic language. In the UK, the conquerors ended up being much more of the ones who uh, decided things. So, in essence, that's why we speak English, which is in origins a Germanic language and not a Celtic language. And one of the other aspects of uh, England, which is very different from, say, France, or that matter, Italy or Spain, uh, is that uh, the number of loan words from Celtic to English is remarkably small. And most of the place names are also tend to be of Germanic origin rather than Celtic. Charles, where did you grow up? Tell me a little bit I about I grew up in uh, New York. And your parents were also from the city? No, where my parents they? were em emigres. Uh, from Brazil. My mother's uh, family was uh, from Italy, one parent from uh, southern Italy, another parent, her father, from Venice. And my father and was more Portuguese-Brazilian. What did they teach you value-wise that was different from America's values or confirmed America's values? I suppose you can say confirmed it. I mean, I went to a Catholic school, and I'm not sure I told you the story. Um, I was when I was very small. I suppose I was bilingual, and the good nuns who um, uh, taught at the school didn't think that this was a good idea in terms of the development of my English language pronunciation, etc. So they called my parents on the telephone, and uh, in essence said that you should stop uh, speaking Portuguese or have him speaking Portuguese at home. And my parents, uh, being good Catholics, at least my mother was, my father, who studied for the priesthood, was not at that point, uh, more of a skeptic. But in any case, they sort of uh, saluted and did what they were told. With so many strains uh, in your culture here and, and bygone, 
what have you selected to try and teach your child, your son? Uh, the emphasis in terms of what we teach my son, Alex, who's eight years old, is um, a mixture of Catholicism, um, of um, what we would call behaving like a gentleman, um, and uh, behavior appropriate to that, that you have to fit in for an eight-year-old. So he should always tell the truth. He should never steal or lie. He should um, always um, lose gracefully and win gracefully. He should try always to um, help other people when they need it. And that if, um, and to be friendly and uh, behave in a proper manner for someone who wants to be, when he grows up, a Christian gentleman. Um, what have you learned from your wife, Anna? I will learn from my wife, Anna, um, huge amounts of information pertaining to computers since she's an IT specialist at uh, where she works. Um, I would say I would learn or confirmed, I would probably say confirmed rather than learned, a lot of things that I already ag agreed with or adhered to, like the need to um, try to be... Um, how should I put it? Um, in Russian, it's a kulturny intelligentnya liudi, or a cultured, educated individual. Um, in Russian, this particular formulation sounds more natural and less pretentious or off-putting as it does in English. So I think very rare that you find someone who says in, in English, or at least in the United States, probably in the UK as well, I'm a, or he is an educated, cultured gentleman or person. It just doesn't trip off the tongue rather easily. Whereas in Russian, it's very, very normal for someone to describe themselves or, or someone else in those terms. So I, say, I would say that to answer your question, we had, before we met, a commonality in terms of this type of idea. Uh, being an American, I just sort of this positive outlook that we could make everything work. And I find that we, I, our times don't seem to apply to our politicians. Okay, you're for one set of policies, you're for another, but there doesn't seem to be much evaluation. Do they work? Should they be changed? What, what part of the American character as a historian explains that well you could argue that up to a certain point in american history the american people american popular discourse were very forward-looking positive um and looked at things in that nature and that seemed to change i suppose it changed in my lifetime since i was born in 1963 it sort of no longer became plausible or seem plausible some sometime between the mid 1960s and the mid 1990s i think for example i'm old enough to remember perhaps you remember as well with uh, the original carter campaign of jimmy carter in 1976 elected in november 76 and uh, becomes president in 19 in 1977 there was a uh, I presume a conscious decision 
to reinvoke an earlier American ethos of um, almost a Wilsonian ethos. And of course, Woodrow Wilson today is not a very popular person, but that's neither here nor there. He's still, one of, he's still I think, regard, correctly regarded as one of the great presidents. And this Wilsonian ethos that Americans were honest, upright, uh, had a certain attachment to some a little bit vague Christian values, uh, and also were adherents to a democratic discourse and democratic ideals, which they wanted to spread to other parts of the world, et cetera, et cetera. And until this change came over, beginning in the late mid to late 60s up to the early mid-1990s, this was more or less the norm. Americans were forward-looking, honest, um, trying to do the best for themselves and for the rest of the world. And afterwards, this type of um, positive adherence to positive ideals became much less popular. First, of course, with elites, cultural elites. Since I reside in New York, I would say the New York Times. And there was or came about this, I would say, imprisonment to this sort of negative discourse about American history Americans as a people, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, you run a real estate business as well as being a historian. Do people, and do you treat the people differently? Do they have different motivational aspects to them? Oh, in terms of being tenants? Uh, well, yes, if you were with fellow historians, what mm -hmm. would motivate them or excite them versus the real estate world? What would motivate ah, them? How would you have to act? I would say in terms of motivating uh, historians, it usually depends upon uh, what their area of specialization is. And of course, to some degree, that's a self-selected uh, community. Meaning, for example, I'm not friendly with, don't really know, I just heard of the type of historian who writes a book about lesbian nuns in the Middle Ages. Um, when I was in graduate school getting my PhD, that was... Um, a very popular niche type of um, historical uh, exploration. I've never really had any um, interaction with people of that type. I'm more of interaction with the historian who does diplomatic history, high politics, and I suppose- I'm going to have to interrupt, interrupt Charles reluctantly sure. because we are coming to the end of time period and I wanna say a few words. I want to thank Charles, and I think we have learned a lot. First of all, the idea of being passionate about what you do is important, and his ability to see the, the what do I want to say, the flow of history makes him possible, uh, makes it easier for him to describe the times he's in, where the rest of us, we're just reacting one way or another or think philosophically. I think he has very good values for raising his child, something that we can all learn from because they are our gift to the future. And uh, it is our job to make them so as good as they can be. So thank you for tuning in. We'll see you next time. Do something kind for someone today and someone tomorrow and continue. Thank you. To contact Junia, send her an email at juniadonesthespark at gmail.com. For more information, program schedules, and news about future guests, 
go to www.juniadonethespark.com. Thank you for joining us. See you next time on Junia Dones The Spark. Local productions seen on Delta College Public Media are made possible with support from viewers like you. Thank you. This program is presented by a community producer through Midland Community Television. The City of Midland and MCTV are not responsible for the content of the program. The views presented do not necessarily represent those of the City of Midland or MCTV. If you would like to produce your own program, contact MCTV at 837-3474 or access our website, cityofmidlandmi.gov MCTV. We hope you enjoy the following presentation.